Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Post-Military Podcast, where we share stories of veterans' transition out of the military and their advice to other service members based on their life experience. Whether you are still in service, a veteran, or just someone preparing to transition into a new chapter of your life, there is something here for you to learn. I've included timestamps in the description of the episode, so head down there to see if there are any topics that are of particular interest to you. Also, while you're poking around, subscribing to the channel or podcast on your favorite platform is always greatly appreciated. Anyway, thank you so much for being here today, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Solemnly swear. To solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Post-Military Podcast. With me today is a former Marine, even though that's a paradox. So he's still a Marina. He's still a Marine on the inside. Served in He served in multiple different uh, capacities uh, while he was in the Marines. He actually got out of the Marines once and then came back in uh, because the Marines missed him so much that uh, they just wanted him to come back in and uh, kick ass for them. And then after leaving the Marines for a second time, he worked at a couple of different jobs, but ended up Owning, owning and operating a drone company where he does site surveys, works in real estate in a couple of different areas in drones. He also is the chief operating officer of a drone education company where you can go and take classes to be able to get certified through the, is it the FAA? Is that who's the licensing body for, for drones? Right. That's correct. Awesome. So the drone company is called Vigilante Enterprises, which is a really cool, really cool thing that you're doing. And also Altitude University, which is the drone company. And the man in question is David Daly. David, thanks so much for coming on today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I'm excited. You've got a really cool life and I'm excited to break that down today for people who are listeners of this show. So Let's let's dive right into it. Give us the I don't want to say Cliff Notes version, but the what was your military career like? Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I think that you know, for me, the Marine Corps was always in my blood. There's the very famous Marine who won the Congressional Medal of Honor twice, Dan Daly. He's a distant relative of ours. So you know, growing up, I always heard of Dan Daly, and I was always pushed towards uh, the military by my, especially my dad, you know, so there were four kids in my family and out of the four, three went in the Marine Corps. So it worked. <laughs> but for me, I started my military years in the Naval Academy. I started that over the summer of 1997 and eventually graduated with class of 2001. And out of the Naval Academy, I became a Marine and did all the normal training that everybody does. And then I ended up specializing in artillery. So uh, that started me off on my particular specialty within the Marine Corps. And then uh, that ended up becoming numerous deployments to Iraq and one to Afghanistan and just doing a variety of different roles across those different tours before moving on to the civilian world. And so when you first, when you graduated in 2001, what was it like entering the combat arms field right after 9-11? Well, the interesting thing was for my class, we actually graduated in, in May. So 9-11 hadn't occurred yet. And we were actually in the middle of our training at uh, the basic school in Quantico when the attack occurred. So it was a very interesting time to 
you go into the tra training with a certain mindset uh, that you're there to be you know, the best so at the time you're learning how to be a platoon commander, how to be the best you can be at that. But at the same time, it's like war is a distant thing. You don't know if that's ever going to be a possibility. It may be, but it may not. But once that happens, suddenly the entire mindset of, of everybody there changed because it wasn't a matter of, will I go to war? It's when will I go to war? And so once that attack happened, I remember we shut down everything that we were doing training-wise. We actually sat on our packs for a day or so, waiting to see if they needed us to provide security around the Pentagon, since we weren't uh, too far from where they were attacked. And from that point forward, the mindset was definitely like, well, I am going to war, so now I really have to every effort I can to get the most out of this uh, training. So it was an interesting time to, to go from that period of where there really hadn't been anything at that level for sure occurring. And I remember President Bush had, had spoken at my graduation in 2001, and he hinted to the, you never know what's on the horizon. You, you could be asked to go to war and all this. And like I said, it was a, yeah, that's a possibility, but who knows if it'll ever happen. And then once that attack happened, the mindset completely changed. It was an automatic you knew that's where you were going. It was just a matter of when and how many times you were going to go. Gotcha. And so in that first stint that you had in the Marine Corps, what would you say was the most impactful position that you had while you were there? Wow, I, I would say well, that would have to be either when I was a, a platoon commander. Oh, that was just such a a awesome responsibility to to have so many people under your command that you're able to help train and lead. And then the position that I would say I had probably enjoyed the most for that first in the Marine Corps was when I was the fires officer for a first recon battalion. And that was for a deployment to Fallujah, Iraq. Okay. And so you were in for, you were in for six years. So a little bit over what the standard Academy commitment was and why did you want to exit the service the first time, especially with that such a steeped history in the Marines? Why did yeah. you decide to, why did you decide that it was time to go the first time? For me, my, my goal had always been, if you're going to be called, called to go to war, that's what you want to do. That's why you're joining the Marine Corps. That's the, the, the point of your existence within that organization. And so my first tour, I was told to go, but the other uh, three within that, that first time I was in the Marine Corps before getting out and coming back in, those were all volunteer tours so that they needed somebody to go with XYZ unit. And I was the guy that, you know, raised my hand and said, I'll do that. And so what I ended up doing was in a you know relatively short period of time, I might be back for six months or, or seven months and I go back for another deployment and that cycle would repeat itself. And so when I got to where I was almost ready to finish my tour with 1st Recon Battalion in Fallujah, I was talking to my monitor about where my career was going now. And they more or less, said, you really hurt yourself promotion wise and for progressing in the Marine Corps because you never had a B billet. And so for me, I was like, I don't understand how our whole purpose is to go to war. You're saying that I hurt myself by volunteering so much. And so they were basically like, well, we're just not seeing that you're going to be able to advance the same way because you didn't have that B billet. And so at that point I said, well, if that's, if you're telling me that I made a mistake by volunteering to go to war in the Marine Corps, and that's what's going to you know, keep me when I have 
a really solid reps and, and things like that, but plenty of chest candy and, and whatnot. If you're telling me that was a mistake, then maybe it's time for me to go. And so they hinted that they thought I was bluffing. And within 30 minutes or so, they had my resignation faxed to them from <laughs> Fallujah. And it became a, oh, wait, we were kidding. And I said, well, you've already showed me what's going to lie ahead. So I'm, I'm not going to play that game. But I got out for that reason. I, I felt that I was being penalized against my peers for the fact that I had gone so many times to a war. That makes sense. I agree. That's very frustrating that the point of the military is to go and project military power for the United States and to be promoted on anything other than lethality and performance in combat, I think is pretty ridiculous. But I, so I completely understand that frustration. And so how much time did you have before spot dropping your resignation and when you were actually out of the service? It wasn't long. It was because I'd actually, I only had about maybe just over a year left when I volunteered to go to that last uh, tour. And we even the, the battalion EO had said, oh, you don't have to go to this. You're short timing in the grand scheme of things. And I was like, well, I, the Marine Corps spent a lot of money to train me to do what I do. And they're not getting anything in return with me sitting here for a year waiting to leave. So when I took that recon tour, that was about a seven month tour in uh, Fallujah. And by the time I got back, it probably only had about half a, a year or so left on my contract. So I, I did a, a little makeup billet, like a facilities officer, I think is what they had me doing. And within a couple months, I was on terminal. And so what did you, what did your transition process look like the first, for that first round of getting out of the service? Did you, were there any resources, were there really any prep resources available for you at that point? Did you do any kind of like not vision casting? Cause that sounds weird, but did you have any idea of, okay, who, what do I want to be when I grow up? Did you ever, did you do any of that or what did just, did just happen? Like, what did that process look like for you? Yeah. I, I didn't really know what I was going to do outside of being in the military. My focus had always been, I'm going to do my 20 and maybe more and figure out everything from there. And so when I left at the time, I was a, I had only been a captain for probably a, a year or two at that point. So call it a junior captain. Um, I really didn't know what to do. So I went to one of the, the headhunter companies that say, oh, if you're an academy grad and an officer and all this, it's easy to find a job. And at the time, my value system was much different. And so I basically told him, like, I don't care what I'm doing as long as I'm getting a boatload of money. And so my transition process, while I was on terminal, I did a couple interviews and I ended up landing a job that seemed like it was something I would thoroughly enjoy. And I think it's fair to say that I was very much avoiding the fact that I had a significant amount of PTSD from my experiences in war. And so I went into... Uh, the transition with the idea of, I just need to find a job and keep work working the same way that you did in the military. So for me, I had gotten a, a job lined up before I even left that was on paper, a very good job, lots of good benefits to it, high pay, it include international travel and whatnot. And even when I did my exit interview with the colonel that I reported to, he said, well, do you have anything lined up? And when I told him what my job was, he was like, well, you're making more than me then. So I, I really can't tell you to stick around. So, so that trend 
because I, I wasn't allowing the issues that I was having to surface, at least not in the way that they would end up surfacing, you know, and make it difficult. It was a pretty quick move from, I was on terminal already working at that new job. That's interesting. Cause I did something very similar in my transition where I got a job that everyone said, Ooh, cause I was cyber warfare. So I ended up working at Amazon web services. Cause that's what everyone said. That's right, the right. peak. And I was like, well, I guess I'll just grind to the peak. And then I did it. And I started working on terminal as well. Looking back on it, do you, would you advise people to start working on their terminal leave? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not at all. The minds, there's such a, there's a lot of growth that needs to be, at least in my opinion, that needs to be seen in the transition process. So you look at the way that the service, any of the services will build up somebody from a civilian into a airman or seaman or Marine or soldier or whatever. Uh, and it takes years to bring that person to where they are now, like a lethal killing machine or, or exceptionally good at whatever they're trained to do. And so then on the, the way out, it, it's a couple of weeks of PowerPoints and don't let this bother you. Go to the VA if you have a problem and, and then you're out. And I know it's gotten better since, since I left the service. So there's still bridge and, and longer tap programs and things like that. But I feel that we're indoctrinated into a mindset that says you shouldn't stop. You always got to push. You always have to give more. And in doing that, you tell yourself, I need to, to keep working. I need to keep doing that and you miss out on opportunities like terminal leave where it's, look, you're getting a check for relaxing. You should find whatever it is that your Zen is and go surf or travel or relax for the first time or, or whatever. But yeah, I, I definitely think that it's, it's a mistake in most cases for people to not enjoy that terminal leave and to start working on it. Yeah, I completely agree. It's something that reflecting upon my own transition that I wish I would have done, but I, I didn't. I jumped right into just grind set at Amazon and that probably wasn't the healthiest move because I was working. I just had a lot of things that I need. I personally needed to work through and I just ignored them by jumping right into a new system and not letting myself spin down from the military. So I completely agree with that. And so when you were getting out the first time, you alluded to two things. You said your value set was different. So you really just said, give me a job that pays. And you were avoiding dealing with your PTSD. At the time, were you aware of these things and chose not to deal with them? Or are these more like things that you just weren't aware of at all? So you didn't deal with them. If that, does that question make, does that distinction make sense? Yes, absolutely. I think it was probably a combination of both knowing and avoiding it and not understanding it. With regards to my value system, I, at the time I was a single guy. I really wasn't doing much in the, the world of dating. And so for me, it was like, I've got no attachments. I can go anywhere I want to go. I can do anything I want to do. Let me just get the money. But like that was my thing. And so my values were very much based on that. And it wasn't until years later that I realized how skewed that was as my focus. Because you had, obviously, you don't go in the military for the money. Or if, if you do, you probably could make a lot more someplace else. <laughs> so my value system there was different. But then once I left, I saw it as, well, I already did my part for uh, the country and, and the usual stuff that you do for freedom and whatever. But now it's my turn to just make money. And, and that was not the right way to do it. But specifically on stuff like the PTSD, 
a lot of the things that I thought were strengths in combat, like being able to disassociate from violence, being able to enact violence, do horrible things like take lives and whatever. I always saw that at the time as, well, these are strengths that I'm able to not let these things bother me, or at least that's the way I saw it. And what I realized later on was you know, a lot of those things were, I was making coping mechanisms for dealing with these that were bleeding out in other ways than the way that would have been healthy. Mm, okay. That makes sense. And for those coping mechanisms, how did those end up manifesting themselves in your life? Because I think that a lot of people are like you in the sense that they don't really understand what's happening to them. They just get out of the military and then these emotions or responses start to manifest themselves and people don't really understand, oh, this is a, oh, this is like a cause of my military time people just go oh i got out of the military now i'm sad or i'm stressed or i'm on edge and i guess i'm just like that now and so what did that present itself as for you once you actually made that transition well for me it was a lot of stuff like the inability to socialize in a healthy way keeping a, a big distance from people emotionally uh disconnecting from situations that Perhaps before going to war, I would have been more likely to be into things like going over to my, spend time with my family or, or like I had most of my family still live in San Diego where I at the time wasn't too far from. So I could have hung out with them all I wanted, but I didn't. Uh, it was a lot of, I think my hypervigilance was really high up there. So a lot of situations that I might've enjoyed, I don't know, going to a, a theme park or something like that. It just made it too difficult to be around crowds and feel that something was wrong. And I used to think for many years, well, this is because I'm smarter than the average bear. I'm aware that there is danger when everybody else isn't. And when you start to realize the amount of energy that it takes to keep doing that and to keep focusing on things like hypervigilance or whatever, it comes out of somewhere, whether that's your, you get depressed or you self-medicate or you find some kind of vice or, or whatever to, to deal with. And if you're not releasing that in a healthy way, it can be very bad. And, and I think when you look at the statistics within the veteran community where 25% of vets that leave the service don't have a job, the homeless ra homelessness rates are double what the normal uh, population's rates are. Same with drug use and things like that, violence and everything. It's, it's, I think, a product of not taking that time to recognize those things and find the healthy outlets for them. So for me, it was a lot of like hypervigilance, disconnecting, being very angry, but not showing that anger in a way like I, I never really got violent in the sense of hitting or, or anything like that. But I would definitely start doing things that were, we used to say uh, when we were at war, we want to get a little meat in the diet if we were going on a patrol or something to uh, see some action or whatever. And so I would do things to get a little meat in the diet, run at two o'clock in the morning in a very dangerous area of town, hoping to have something happen. So I feel that rush again. So it was a lot of that kind of stuff uh, for me. Does that answer your question? No, that does. No, I, I appreciate, I appreciate you being so upfront about that stuff because I think that a lot of people, the military, I don't believe does a good job of equipping transitioning military members with the mental self-awareness to self-diagnose 
And I right. think that people just get out of the military and are just slaves to their emotions because we have so many of them decoupling ourselves from our value set, from our service, from our combat time. And those things manifest themselves in some pretty weird ways, but it's very hard for someone who just got out of the military to look at themselves and be able to say, oh, this is affecting me because I've been emotionally tied to my service or kind of what you just did where, hey, when I was on patrol and war, like I needed to get the meat in my diet. And now that's gone. There's still a part of me that needed that. So I went and I found it. And so being able, most people, I don't think immediately can go back and like draw the points from what's my at, why am I doing this now to this is what I'm missing because I left the military. And so I think that's you being able to draw those lines, I think is important for people who might not be in a place where they can currently do that. And so I appreciate you breaking that down. And so what was it like but for you? I do want to, agree. Oh, I do want to go for real it. quick. That took years yeah. and a lot of yeah. work. Like that yeah. was not a easy process. And that was a very rough, probably decade or so to get to where I am uh, now. Uh, so it's not easy. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when we're in the military, regardless of what service you're in or what you do, you have an identity, you have a purpose, you have a very defined role that is recognized amongst your peers and those around you. And unlike most professions, if you're a doctor and you decide to retire, you're still a doctor, you're just not practicing. But in the military, you go from having this very defined identity to the minute you sign that DD-214, you've lost that all. Like that is no longer you. And I think that loss of identity is one of the biggest things that could be worked on by the services for the transition process to help you realize your identity outside of that environment. And that, I think, is the cause of a lot of the issues that vets have. And I know was what was probably the, the main ingredient towards all the bad things, the bad roads that I went down. I completely agree. And it's something that's so so not talked about, but so very impactful. And for you, as someone who had heard all this stuff about your relative who went to the Naval Academy and then went straight into the Marine Corps, like your entire adult life up until that point had been in the service. And mm -hmm. with your benefit of being able to look back and reflect, what was that impact on what were the emotions? What was the emotional impact of you detaching yourself from that pretty large portion of your identity up until that point? Oh, it was the root of, for me, depression, anger. Uh, it was a loss of self, a loss of life. I've always felt, even to, to some degree now, that since those experiences, I'm a half second ahead or a half second behind the rest of the world. Like, that's what I feel is that that frequency I'm slightly off of. And I think that well, that feeling of... I have a role that is important and I know what it's producing, like what my efforts are showing to not have that anymore. And especially like the, the civilian world, at least in my experience, the value system's different. And it took me years to understand that, so that it's not like honor or courage, commitment, all that kind of stuff. 
So that may be what the company that you're working for has as their mission statement or whatever. It's just profit. It's just about making more money for raising a share price or moving more product or whatever. And so that difference in the value system made it very hard to find purpose and identity. And in that, well, that led me down all kinds of, of bad things, you know, eventually to where I was suicidal and came close to taking my life in 2018. And certainly in my twenties, I was a gambling addict. I had spent years just gambling away my money and, and being very irresponsible with it. And lots of drinking and other stuff that, you know, just that's the roads it took me down to cope. It's sad to say that this is, that's such a, that's such a not, that's such a common life story for people who get out of the military and we'll dive, we'll dive more into those things here soon. And so for you, you get out of the service, pretty ill-equipped from an emotional perspective, you end up getting a job that theoretically is a good gig. And how long did it last? How long did it last for you with that initial role? Yeah, that, that job ended up being, it was in the aerospace industry and it, it happened to be that when I got out, it was right at the, the great recession in, uh, 08. And so the aerospace industry lags the normal economy by about a year or two in general, just because of how long it takes to have contracts run and things like that. And so I came in probably at the worst time to have the job that I had. And so within a year, the economy had caught up to the aerospace industry, or, or I should say the aerospace industry caught up to the economy. And uh, my company just started laying off pretty significant numbers of, of people. And within, I want to say I was there for maybe about a year and four months or something, I was laid off as part of that. And so for me, it was only about a year, not even a year and a half. And I think it would be a combination of the global economic downturn and me not performing as well as I uh, probably could have if I'd had the right mindset. But working for a boss that probably wasn't well equipped to be a very good leader and teacher, but just made it that that didn't last more than a year and with some change. Okay. And so then what did you do next at that point? Well, you know, that same mindset, of, I got to keep working. I got to keep finding what the, the gig is. I went back to the headhunters and I said, find me another job as soon as possible. And I remember the, the last one I interviewed for was a company that makes uh, carpet. And when I was doing really well in the interview process, and I remember the people I was interviewing with, that I don't even remember what stage of interviews it was, but it was several in and I was close to the hiring point, were telling me how excited they were that they got the Winnie the Pooh carpet line. And I just remember thinking, I will never be this excited about Winnie the Pooh carpet. And they were beaming as if, won a Nobel prize or something, you know, I just told the headhunter, I'm not going down that route. It's me. Yeah. And so I said, there's a war going on, find me something in the war zone. And, and so from there found a contracting job. And next thing I knew I was in Afghanistan. Oh, and as a civilian. yeah. And what were you doing as a civilian back in Afghanistan? I was working for a company that had a lot of the contracts out in the, the war zone there. And I was basically the ops manager for their air operations. So uh, it was a lot of like day-to-day -day planning on what aircraft were going to move, everything from mail to food to munitions to people. Uh, and so it was just like the ops manager for that. Got it. 
And what was that like for you from a emotional or an event or a mental perspective to be back in the, be back in the middle East, be back in that war zone, but not be in the service. It was a very interesting uh, experience for me because coming from at that point, I had never been to Afghanistan. My, my war tours up to then were all in Iraq. And so it was a completely different culture. It's obviously uh, very different than Iraq. And so for me, I went in there with a lot of the same feelings that people who have never been to war have because I, I did not know this environment. But going in as a civilian, it was a completely different experience. Like the you're not as much of a target as a military personnel uh, would be. And so for me, it was in one sense, I felt like the hypervigilance on steroids uh, and I was very aware of at any minute you could be kidnapped or whatever. But on the other hand, we weren't even on a U.S. base. We had our own little compound. The company was paying off the local police to have everybody ignore us for the most part. And so we'd be having beers and lobster every night. You could go into town, into Kabul, and go to the grocery store and buy steaks and whatever. And they had, I remember one of the crazy things was they had a, a Mexican restaurant that delivered. And so this guy didn't taste authentic or, you know, like I'm, I'm Hispanic and, and, you know, there's like a certain flavor of the food that you get that was missing from it, but you could get nachos and tacos and stuff delivered from a guy in his hatchback to the front gate of our little compound. And that was a normal uh, evening. And so it was a very different experience to, to go there and see these heavily armored convoys with MRAPs and stuff, uh, bobbing and weaving through the traffic to get back to base safely and avoiding IEDs. And then we're there just in a, a Toyota 4Runner, you know, going to the grocery store going like, are we going to have lobsters today or should we do steaks or both? It was a very different experience for sure. Man, I can't even imagine what level of like mental whiplash you were going through at this point in your life to go from military service to getting fired from your first civilian job to or not getting fired but getting laid off then That's almost crazy. selling winnie the pooh carpet <laughs> to having lobster on a semi-defended compound in afghanistan in like what two years is that yeah. is that about the oh my gosh that's crazy man so then you're offered to come back into the service that was like the craziest thing one of the craziest things in, when you we talked earlier was you were like, yeah. And then they were like, Marines call you up and go, hey, boss, you want to come back? What's the story behind that? Yeah, I, to this day, I, I, I don't know how the Marine Corps got my number because I, I had cut ties with the service in, in every possible way. And at that point, I don't even think I was really doing anything with the VA. And all I had on me was the little Roshan cell phone, the Russian cell phone that uh, you can buy out there in Afghanistan. And one day while I was doing my work, I get this random call and I don't recognize the number and I pick up and it's this colonel, uh, you know, out in Camp Pendleton. And he says, uh, is this, you know, Captain Daly? I was like, well, this is Dave. This isn't, you know, I, I'm not anymore. Like that, those days are gone and I don't know you guys anything. I'm out. Apparently this colonel was looking for people that could work with an assignment he had that he was putting together for a tour in Afghanistan. And he said, hey, I saw some stuff in your file. You were with Recon and uh, did a bunch of tours. I'd like to see if I can entice you to come back in. And I said, well, I've already resigned my commission. I, I don't think that's a possibility without literally an act of Congress. 
And he said, no, it's, it's, you know, wartime. We got some special things we can do. We can put you back in today. And he said, all I'm asking is, are you coming back to the States anytime soon? And I said, well, as luck would have it, I'm coming on leave in about a week or two here for a couple of weeks. And he said, if you could just stop by Pendleton, because I was uh, coming to San Diego anyways, if you can just stop by Pendleton, I just want to talk to you for like an hour or so. So, you know, I talked to him and, and a, a pretty good deal. It was, you can come back in for a year of war. So you're going to be attached to a Marsoc and do some stuff with them. And then you can part without owing us any time. We'll bring you in as if you didn't miss any time in rank. So when I left in 08, I was a junior captain. And then he said, yeah, you're going to come in as a captain ready to pick up major. I was, he had never left. And so he said, you can choose to stay at the end of that tour or you can leave without owing anything at all. Your, your call. And so I said, well, I'm already here in Afghanistan and I was getting bored of the thing I was doing. Plus, I didn't really like the fact that I wasn't armed in that role. And I said, oh, why not? Let's do it. So within a, a month or two after that meeting, I got back on the plane. But this time I was oh, Captain Daly again. And so what was it like for you from that? What was it like for you then emotionally to have that two years of absolute chaos to going back into the Marine Corps and then also be on a, an assignment that was like pretty high speed, pretty tip of the spear, pretty impactful. What was that? Where were you at in your headspace at that point? You know, uh, when I left in 08, I was sure I made the right decision based on the fact that the Marine Corps was saying I made a mistake by going to war so much, at least for with regards to career progression. And so when the recession was started affecting me and I was let go from that position, there was always that thought, well, maybe you made a mistake of leaving. Or maybe that was what went wrong. You should have stayed in. You should have tried to find another way to, to advance or whatever. And so there was always that thought of maybe I got out too soon. And so my first thought was elation over the fact that this is my chance to see whether or not I made a mistake or whether or not this is where I should have stayed. And so that quickly changed to, no, I made the right choice. I, I should so because you, at least in my case, there was a nostalgia that I have attached to my time in the service. And so you quickly find that like ah, the red tape and all that stuff is still there. You still got to deal with a lot of BS and whatnot. And so for me, even though I was attached to Marsoc, I was thinking very much like my other chores were like, oh, I'm certainly not going to be on point, but I'm definitely going to be doing a lot of patrols and going into contested areas and doing all the Ricky Recon door kicking kind of stuff. And then what you end up figuring out is, well, now you're older, so you're a staff. And so I went from the, the recon tour in Fallujah to now I'm the staff guy building PowerPoints and briefing people on, oh, you're going on this mission to this dangerous area. I know the person who can get you fuel. And it was a very disheartening tour for that reason, because it was uh, just very much told me you made the right decision getting out. And I knew for sure the Marsoc CEO one time had asked me to put together a slide deck for him. And when I went over it, he looked at me, he said, oh, you have the qualities of a great staff officer. And I was like, ah, sir, you should have just shot me. I would have been more about that, you know, so that, that was where my mindset was, you know, I was elated to, to see whether or not I had made a mistake and to, to rectify that or see if I was right. And once I realized that was right, it was just a matter of do the best I can on this tour and then get out. Got it. 
And when you knew that you were going to do the tour and you knew that you were going to get back out, did you do any kind of any additional kind of prep work for getting out that you hadn't done the first time? Yeah. In, in the first time, I feel like I was burned out from spending the majority of the time that I was in in combat. And so I didn't want to do, even though I had some pretty good offers from some of, especially the security force contractors out in Iraq, the Aegis, Blackwater, Blackwater kind of guys back then, can triple canopy, that kind of stuff. Even though I had some like pretty good offers that I could have gone down in, in with those agencies, I didn't want to spend any more time in the war zone. This time when I was getting out, uh, I thought I'd be a fool not to start looking at the contractor world for the big bucks that you can get. Cause clearly I showed myself at least what I was thinking at the time, I showed myself that the civilian world is not for me. So I need to bank on as many high paying tours as I can and find a contracting job. So I had already started when it was getting close to that time, figuring out who I was going to work as a contractor for back in gotcha. the war zone. And so were you successful in finding a contractor position once you got out? Yeah, I found a position with uh, Fleur. You know, they were one of the big ones doing the chow hall contracts and all that. And I essentially had lined myself up to be a uh, uh, kind of like a camp commandant or, you know, the mayor of a camp uh, in very remote uh, regions in uh, Afghanistan. So I was, I think they called it a site manager uh, was what it was called. So basically had that lined up so that I was ready to leave very shortly after coming back from that tour. So you literally left your Marine Corps tour, went back to the States, out processed the Marine Corps, and then went back to Afghanistan. Yeah, it <laughs> that's was, crazy. Man. Maybe maybe just a couple months uh, okay. after that, but you know the money was uh, it was just ridiculous to turn down. You know the kind of money oh, I believe they it. make out there. So yeah, for me, that experience in the aerospace industry had told me you can't survive in the civilian world you need mm. to this is what you're good at so go back to where you're good at. and so it was like gotcha. Let me just go back to war yeah and so how did you eventually work yourself out of that fear or that that belief that all you could be good at was war oh well up to that point i i had not been any kind of ever in a, a serious relationship or anything and by the time I was on that uh, tour, tour with a floor, you know, I had met, uh, you know, the uh, uh, my my wife, Daphne, and we were talking about a future together. And uh, we had both kind of, if, if we're going to make a go at this, it probably isn't going to be the best if we're on opposite sides of the world. And so probably about halfway through that tour was when we were like, yeah, we want to make a, a go at this. And I had proposed to her and we said, okay, at that point, it's we got to end this type of work. And so mm -hmm. uh, it was a, just a matter of let's finish the tour that I'm on because you get a nice bonus when you finish that year. It was like, let's finish this tour and then dive back into the civilian world outside of World War And what was that like for you at that point? trying to dive back in the civilian world after you had basically convinced yourself, Hey, I, this isn't for me. I'm not going to be happy here. I understand you got a wife now, so you want to make sure that you have a more stable place, but how were you able to overcome that belief that this wasn't for you? Yeah, I think it was more out of necessity. It was, I can't go down the, the, the road of staying in the war zones 
So time to just do what you do just with the Marine Corps, you suck it up and push, push, push. And so I thought, well, my, my best bet is to look for companies that are specifically hiring veterans so that I can get somebody that understands that mindset and probably be surrounded by people that also have that mindset. So I think I actually, I went to one of the service academy hiring conferences and just looked around for who was hiring specifically with like vet programs and whatnot. And I'd already at the time started talking to uh, Amazon prior to that conference. And then once I got there, they were like, oh, well, you're already in the pipeline. Let's do our interviews here at the conference. And if we like you, we'll hire you on the spot. So that's what ended up happening. Gotcha. And how long did you work for Amazon? Probably about two years. And that was in a variety of different roles, but I started running a, a shift at one of their plants in Southern California. Gotcha. And what was it like for you in that first role? Because you had been in Afghanistan and Iraq for a significant portion of your life up until that point. And I'm assuming that all of the PTSD and the emotional things that you have discussed in this episode so far, those things hadn't resolved themselves at that point. And so what was it like for you within those two years where you were, what was what was it like working through all of that stuff? Well, initially, it was a great opportunity to continue to mask all of that and to avoid processing any of it because I was working third shift and I would say of the other managers I was working with, probably three quarters of us were part of the military vet program that they had. And a lot of us had all done tours of war. So it was like, there were a handful of kids who had come straight out of college and were working there, but most of us were all combat vets. And so it was a lot of camaraderie and a lot of shared experiences. And it was a lot of that, like you just keep grinding, you hustle, you push, you just work. And so it was like, by the end of each day, we were all like literally pouring sweat. And just, it was a lot of the same kind of mentalities as the military. So I was able to avoid acknowledging that even to the point where, you know, when my family would say, well, they used to, at that point, I started going to the VA and, you know, they were trying different meds to, to address some of my PTSD stuff. You know, I'd have like my, as my family called it, the jerk pill, you know, that if I didn't take that, I was jerky to everybody. And it was a lot of just being distant and cut, not really sharing emotions and definitely being emotionally abusive and rough and not present for everything that was going on. So, so those years at Amazon definitely allowed me to continue to avoid anything that would be looked at in the form of recovery or addressing my issues from war. Gotcha. And so you do, you, so you think that because you were around so many other veterans that were, you were on so many other veterans that had a similar experience as you, and you were in a company that was very much go the work pace. And then just the culture just allowed you to just feel not at home, but just like you were just one of the one of the guys versus, hey, this is something that needs to be worked through. Do you think that's what that's what stopped you from uh, engaging with those like that emotional baggage that you had to unload at some point? Yeah, I think it was just the mindset of when you're in the military, it's very much a you can always give more. You can always keep pushing, push through the pain, push through the anguish. If it's a bad day, push through it, that kind of thing. Move it to the side and worry about it later. 
And at that particular role in, in Amazon, it was the same kind of environment where you were just expected to always do more, always push. And obviously that's why they hire people that are veterans because it's, it's, they know that mindset exists and they can, like, they may on paper say that they're paying you a great amount, but you very quickly work to learn that you're going to earn, you're going to work way harder than what they're paying. And so well, because of that, it was just an environment that said, you don't have time to worry about this other stuff, you know, just keep work, 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 work. And would you have any advice for a veteran who finds themselves in a similar work environment, whether it be Amazon or not, um, would you have any advice for somebody for how they can start working on themselves? Yeah, I think the thing that you really have to look at is you have to do a lot of self-reflection and you have to understand that there is absolutely nothing wrong with saying that you have issues with experiences that you've had. And mm -hmm. I think that there's such a stigma around trauma in general, and mm -hmm. I don't care what that trauma is from. You could have gotten a paper cut and that could have been the most traumatic thing that ever happened to you in your life. Yeah. If that produced trauma for you, that's trauma. Or if you have horrible memories of being a combat veteran or something like that, or military sexual trauma or any of the things that, that are out there that people experience, there is a toll that takes on you. And so I think that the best thing you can do is identify that you are having issues, realize that stigma is only there because it's been placed there by people that aren't taking the time to appreciate the importance of recognizing that and then to find help. And, and thankfully, as vets, unlike a lot of other you know groups in society, we have an enormous amount of resources out there mm -hmm. for us, both from the government and from the private uh, sector that we can tap into. And I think that recognizing that you have issues is the first step. And then understanding that there is nothing wrong, quite the opposite, actually, in trying to find the resources that will help you address those and grow out of it. Do you think that more veterans don't, do you think that veterans don't engage with those resources because they don't know or because they choose not to? I think everybody's journey is different. And so that's probably an answer that, that if you looked at everybody would be all across the spectrum. But what I think is a common thing that I've seen in the vets that I've talked to and done various programs with is first, there's the stigma of, I don't want to be the person that says I'm weak or the perceived weakness kind of thing. And in that, there's a lot of isolation where you don't realize that there's a lot of people feeling the same way that you are. And there's a reason that you're feeling that way because the, the human mind is not supposed to experience those kinds of horrible, traumatic things, especially that you see in, in war. And so I think that a lot of it is because there's that stigma and nobody wants to be the one that admits they have a problem because we've been indoctrinated into a, a community within the military where it says, you don't want to be the weak person. You don't want to be the one that, that is having issues. And that may have some usefulness, and I stress may have some usefulness in an environment like combat, but it certainly does not outside of that environment. At least that's my experience. And so I think that stigma is what a big hurdle that's out there for a lot of people in the community to admit I'm having issues and I need help. Hmm. I think that's a, I think that's an excellent point. And the other piece that I've seen in the piece that I've personally struggled with is 
especially because I was in a support unit from a cyber perspective. Like it, I was never tip of the spear. So I would look at folks like you who actually were deplo- who actually deployed and at, went overseas and, and got shot at and were in the line of fire and people got killed, people got maimed, all of these things. And as a support person, I can always look at that and go, I didn't have it that bad. So I need to step aside and let let there be room for those people who got tuned up real bad. And that, but it's funny because people in your position, you can do that. You do the exact same thing that I do because you're like, well, I didn't get blown up or I didn't get I didn't get shot or whatever the thing is. And it's just very interesting how we as veterans we always know someone who got it worse, and so then we feel the need to step aside so that perceived person or that real person can get the help that they need. And it's like that self-sacrificial, like you almost want to like martyr yourself so that somebody else can get the help that they need. Cause, cause it's why I didn't get it that bad. So someone else needs the help. Yeah. And I think that's part of the, the indoctrination process is you're always putting yourself as the one that, that is sacrificed. And so you can always find somebody that you say, well, I may have had five tours of war, but there was a guy who did six or there was some lady who did seven or, or whatever, where it's, well, now I can't rank that or this person got a higher award or whatnot. And then especially you know, it's like you look at your experiences, for instance, when I was in Fallujah finishing up my, I guess it was my second tour, my Humvee had gotten hit with an ID and I was in the, the seat behind passenger seat in the front and that side of the vehicle is where we got hit. So it was the, the vehicle got mangled up and, and luckily none of us had any injuries. So we just got lucky that it was, I think, buried too deep or whatever. But anyways, it was like, you know, being hit with an IED is a traumatic event. But I would look at it and say, well, nobody in, in the Humvee that, that, you know, I was in when we got hit got hurt. So how does that compare to somebody where I had friends in, in vehicles where they were killed or maimed or whatever? And so you, you sit there and you like say, well, that's a real person who got hurt that's a real person that there did something traumatic and and in my case it just messed up the vehicle so i don't have a right to you know that's kind of the lie that you tell yourself and i think that what the reality is is like i said before it could have been a paper cut that was your traumatic event and happened in life and and that trauma needs to be recognized and you need to feel okay with saying i'm all right with telling everybody that i've got an issue with this and i need help and when i first got into like the wounded warrior project I was kicking and screaming going in and it was through my wife that I had gotten into it. And I found it interesting that when I first started talking to them before I signed up, I had said, well, I've, I, my injuries, like I had a a pretty significant spinal injury that happened while I was in training, not in combat. And the stuff that I deal with now, the PTSD, I never got maimed. I never got shot or whatever. And they let me know that the majority of the people that are in the WWP, you know, program are for PTSD that had no injuries and stuff. And that was kind of a big, like, wow, really? You know, like that's, that's what, you know, cause you think, oh, it's the guys missing limbs or the, the ones that are burned or, or, you know, all this stuff. And the reality is that it's like trauma's trauma and you have to recognize that and understand that it's the things that we've been conditioned to think that say, this is more important trauma than this trauma. And it's like, that's fallacy as trauma and recognizing it is important and judging it on a scale is also important. And once you recognize it, you can start getting help and improving your quality of life. Trauma is probably one of the 
most important things that I think that a military veteran needs to hear because mm-hmm. we're so we can play the comparison game so well compared to most people. So oh, yeah. for you, when, why, when did you leave Amazon and what did you, why did you leave Amazon and what did you do next? Well, in my case, I'd gotten injured at work. And so I ended up leaving because of that injury. And that was really the first period where I suddenly had a lot of time on my hands to be depressed and to be looking at it as like, I did everything I was supposed to. I I went to the academy and I became a Marine officer and I did my tours at war and I, I went to corporate America and I got my degree and all this kind of stuff. And when it looked like everything that I had uh, positioned myself for was falling apart. It was really a, a rough time because that's when I started really getting into the depression and the hypervigilance and the emotional disconnect and just not putting up those uh, shields that were keeping me, still taking a toll on me, but keeping me from realizing it as, as heavy as it was. And that kind of started like the downward progression of just uh, trying to tread water, if you will, and continuing to sink further and further until I got to the point where finally I was like, I'm going to drown and then be out of this if I don't find help. And what stopped you? Why did you decide to go get help versus continue to spiral downwards? Well, I have an amazing partner. My wife, Daphne, is just fantastic and has hung with me through the worst of the worst. And her encouragement was what really kept me going. And so mm. through through her encouragement, I started taking a shot at programs like, okay, I, I can go back to the VA or I can go on this Project Odyssey with Wounded Warrior Project. Or eventually I went to a, a program they had called the Road Home Program, which is like a three-week outpatient intensive PTSD thing that I was at a Rush University in Chicago where, you know, they like for three weeks just really really work into the PTSD thing and you're in a small group of a dozen other vets that are having like really seriously strong PTSD issues. It's just therapy on steroids. So those programs and starting to really get into all that stuff and realizing that I do have a lot of issues and that's okay, but it's not okay to say, I'm just going to let that monopolize who I am and and eventually take me under and and those around me. It's, Mm. it's, I recognize it. Now I got to do the work to fix it. And what would you say that the, for you, what was your like daily or weekly rhythm that you got into to start helping you work through a lot of those mental issues? Unfortunately, I wish I could say that it was like a linear, a progression of progress. It's, it's, uh, and I think most of the vets that that I've talked to or anybody for that matter, who's experienced trauma, it's nonlinear. And so. It's a lot of, you know, maybe you'll do meditation for a while and that'll work, or maybe you'll start exercising and that'll work, or, you know, doing different kinds of therapy and stuff. And it's little by little, you move forward, then you move back, forward and back. And it was just a really rough, probably decade or so of doing that before getting to the point where I started to do consistent work where you would say, well, I'm going to focus on the fact that I'm having hypervigilance issues. And then you find whatever it is that works for you, the combination of stuff. So I would go in and out of it when I was still having the, the gambling issue. I would do GA for a little while. And I used to call into a, a GA meeting once a week. 
There were uh, lots of programs at the VA, lots of things with the Wounded Warrior Project and some other organizations like that. Just little by little, I started getting the tools collected that would say, okay, I'm realizing that being involved in this particular activity is not healthy for me. I'm realizing that if I'm noticing that I'm being uh, a jerk and emotionally unavailable, I'm going to have to learn to be empathetic and I'm going to have to work on that and talk to therapists about that and find what it is that works for me. And so it was a lot of just figuring that stuff out and little by little building the tools to say, all right, I'm going to be responsible for the fact that I have these issues and that it's causing the people that I care about to, to have a lower quality of life. It's causing me to have a lower quality of life. And if I want that to change, I have to move in a productive direction. And so you would take the little bits of that and move forward. You know? mm. I completely agree with talking, just saying with the concept that this improvement's non-linear. And I think that for a lot of veterans, that's really frustrating because people expect like strategic level improvement points, not like, like war, like uh, improvement by inches. And so what would you say, what advice would you give people to encourage them through that process? Cause you said it's been all, like a, over a decade's worth of work. And so what advice or encouragement would you give people so that they can like work? Cause it's a long process. Like what, it, how would you encourage those people? For me, it's one recognize the issues Two, understand that's totally normal and that it's okay to have issues and three search for that network of help and lean on it but we're very good at i think as a veteran community saying oh, you got to do it all on your own but the reality is if you really look at like your military career it was a team oh and, and you weren't successful because you were god's gift to the military it was because you had a team around you that was really good and everybody relied on the other people around them. And that's where the strength was. And then when we get out, a lot of people, including myself, say, I'm going to forget about that fact that it was the team that really was the strength. And I'm going to think that I have to do it all on my own. And that's what I think that the, the biggest piece of advice is just realize that you were successful in the military because there was a team around you. And you can be successful outside of the military by also recognizing that like, you got to find that team. And that could be other veterans. That could be Maybe for you, it's best not to be around veterans, but find whatever it is that is your team, your family. And that's not just biological. That's anybody that gives you a positive outlook, that gives you a strength and moves you in that positive direction. That's your team. And you look for everywhere that you can find that, you know, like, um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll read uh, the stuff of the, the Stoics, you know, like my, my partner is big into that and she'll say, oh, this Marcus Aurelius quote is really good. And uh, yeah, I got something for that. Other times I'll read a book by RuPaul you know, and say, wow, he really gets it. You know, he's got some fantastic advice in this book of his. And it's just finding all those little tidbits of positive stuff that you put together that becomes your therapy, your way out of this, or at least to journey along in a positive direction for it. And so well, that's really what you have to do, I think, is just not look at it as, I wish I could be cured of this, or I wish I could, I should be able to fix this in a moment's notice. No, it's, this is a journey. Like those experiences that, that are traumatic, they are going to change you for the rest of your life. That's, you cannot undo that. But what you can do is the way that you process it, the way that you approach those reactions that you have that are a product of that trauma, and really just looking for that network, that team around you is what you need to do in, in my opinion. I love that you say that people can get advice 
or community or inspiration from a variety of different sources. And you've said this before, but I really want to highlight it, which is everyone's journey is very unique to them. And mm -hmm. just because something worked for me or for you doesn't necessarily might work for another person. And so just because you try something that works for someone, it doesn't work for you doesn't mean that you're out of hope. It just means that there's just a different process out there that's better for you, which I think is, which is something that I think people get discouraged by rather quickly because they try something that worked for their friend and then it doesn't work for them. And I think that understanding that your, everyone's journey is unique is incredibly important. It's also important to not quit on it. It's, you, you wouldn't quit in the military. Like if your rounds are coming down range and, and all the chaos of war is happening around, you don't have the option to quit. So you just figure out a way to mentally say, I'm going to keep going through that. And you need to apply that same discipline to your recovery with stuff like the trauma and how you deal with it when you transition out of the military and just sticking with it and saying, hey, I'm just trying to be a little better on this. And if, if today wasn't a great day, tomorrow's coming and just keep rolling with that. And that especially helps when you have that network in place that you can sit there and call up somebody or talk to somebody near you and, and say, hey, I'm really hurting here. But what do you think? And they can say, keep hanging with it, keep going. And, and just like they did in the service, you, on like an obstacle course or something, everybody's cheering you on. Don't stop. Keep going. You got this and all this. Like You find that same crowd around you on the civilian side and it'll get you through a lot of those dark moments and pushing in that positive trajectory. Yeah. Keep pushing through regardless of how an individual day goes is incredibly important for people to um, think about and remember. And so for you, once you started seeking out help, how did you eventually find yourself in the uh, drone business? Yeah, well, for, for me, uh, you know, I've always been like a techie nerdy of a guy. And uh, my wife had pointed out that I should get like a camera drone to mess around with because I'd, I'd probably have some fun with it. And so I had gotten what I guess today would be considered more of a toy drone. And one of the things that I noticed when I was flying it was that I could feel like a little bit of a relief from my PTSD symptoms while I was flying the drone. So uh, I, I found that having that, that different perspective of looking above the ground as opposed to being on the ground was enough to tell my mind, you don't have to worry about the, the trauma stuff for a few minutes. Just fly this drone and look at the scenery and whatnot. And so when I had shared that with her, she had said, uh, you really ought to think of doing this as, as a business, you know, and looking for corporate America kind of jobs. And as usual, you know, I, I took a, a while to, fully bite off on that and and you know with her encouragement finally got to where i was like okay let me see i can make this a business so i bought a, a drone that was a little better than the one that i had and started finding it yeah i could i could fly for real estate stuff or different mapping projects or whatever and before i knew it after a relatively short time i got to where i was not only doing the, the flying but i was also writing for the industry for various publications and different online and in-print sources and started between the writing and the, the drone flying, realizing, hey, I got a, a business here. And so started the Vigilante Drones and haven't looked back since. That's awesome. And so for you, what would you say is the most, what's the most interesting type of drone prod, like drone work? Because I think people are familiar with, oh, the drone flies over the house and it does the aerial shots or aerial shots in videos or film. But what would you, what are some things that you're doing with your drones that people wouldn't 
really expect from a, just a general consumer market? I think some of the, the more interesting stuff I've done is for me, I do a lot of vacant land photography. So I think part of the loss of identity when you leave the service is you have this enormous skill set that is hard to find in the civilian world where it can apply. So for instance, in my Marine Corps days, I could disassemble and reassemble dozens of weapon systems and tell you all about their muzzle velocity and the right way to employ them. But I've never been asked to, to take apart an M4 and put it back together in, in 30 seconds or whatever in the real world. And so you feel, oh, I've, I've got all this stuff that means nothing now. Well, I've found that for me, at least part of the helpful aspect of finding your identity is saying there were skills that were applicable to the civilian world. I just need to find which ones they are. And so since land navigation, when I started doing the vacant land photography, I found that land navigation was one of those skills that like, okay, if I'm in the middle of nowhere, and for me, a lot of my, my gigs that I get are in the Mojave desert. If I'm in the middle of the Mojave desert where there's no civilization anywhere and I'm hours away from even a paved road or whatever, I can rely on my survival training in the Marine Corps. I can rely on land navigation and stuff. And so for me, that those are like some of the interesting jobs are doing like the, hey, I get to hike in nature, fly my drone and take some pictures of this land that I never would have gone to if I hadn't had this uh, skill set of being a drone pilot. And I'm getting paid a good amount of money to basically just hike around and take some pictures and stuff. So that's fun. And then you'll get to do projects that like for me, I've always been into archaeology. And so sometimes hired to film like a site that somebody wants to see if it's a burial site or if there's any kind of markings or geoglyphs or pictographs or anything like that. So those kind of jobs are really uh, fun for me. That's awesome. And was this your first, when you started Vigilante, was this your first time starting your own business? Was this your first time going into entrepreneurship after the military? No, I had always tried to start a bunch of stuff, but uh, my stick-to-itiveness was always lacking. And I think that was a big part of my PTSD. Was that same kind of, when you think of your recovery in terms of, oh, I got to fix this now and then be done with it and move on to the next dragon to slay. It was the same way where like I'd start a business, I'd get all the paperwork done, I'd file, I'd have an official letter from the IRS, here's your EIN and all that. And then I'd do nothing with it. And so I probably started three or four LLCs before Vigilante, but Vigilante was the first one where I was like, all right, let me stick with this, let me keep building it. Let me learn about marketing. Eventually I, I had gotten a MBA. And so that helped with a lot of understanding of business stuff. Although now I think YouTube can give you the same information that all the schooling gave me and probably the best way to go would be the, the YouTube route. But, no. but yeah, it was not until Vigilante that I had finally started one that I actually kept working at to make it a success because in the other ones you'd get frustrated at least i did where it'd be like oh, i only made a hundred bucks like that this is a, a waste of time and so you'd let it go and so with vigilant it was the first time that i really kept pushing on it and a lot of that was adapting encouraging me with hey you're gonna have in the beginning months where like you only make a hundred bucks so you gotta keep going you gotta keep pushing hustling whatever Eventually, got to a point where wow i'm you know doing pretty well this is this could be my sole source of employment and sticking with it over the years is really brought it to where it's an enjoyable career within that industry. And so what advice would you give a veteran who is looking to possibly start their own business? 
Oh, I, th I think the number one, speaking about what we had talked about earlier with my values being based on whatever makes me the most money. One of the life lessons that I learned over the last, you know, I guess 40 plus years is that money is a very poor thing to hang your values on. And as cliche as it sounds, it's really about happiness. And so I think that if you find something that you love doing and you can make a business out of that, that's where you're going to be successful. If you're looking at it as, I heard I can make a lot of money by doing this, you're probably, you might be successful to some extent, but you're going to be miserable doing that. And that's going to take its toll on you in other ways, I think. But if you can really sit there, like I genuinely enjoy going out there in the wilderness and hiking and taking pictures and flying my drone, I'm happy to do that. It just happens that it pays really well. So for me, it's the perfect combination there. And then same thing with the company that I'm the, the CEO of. It's in the drone industry. I love working with people to, to help train them to become a drone pilot as well. A line of work that I'm very passionate about and that I have a lot of faith in the growth of the industry. So it just happens to add to that, that experience of, of feeling like I'm doing something I enjoy. And so I think if you're going to start a business, Daphne had asked me once a question of like, when you were a kid, what is it that you wanted to do? Did you want to become a Marine and go to war and all this stuff? I thought about it and I was like, no, I didn't. I, I wanted to be an archaeologist. That was the thing that I really wanted to be. And so I started thinking like, well, what can I do in that field? And so I'm actually looking now at going back to school to become an archaeologist. And there's a lot of uh, use of uh, drones within archaeology. And so I can take those skills and, and continue to carry them on. But that's something that I want to you know, focus on in the coming years. And so I think it's the best advice is if you want to start a successful business, start with looking at what is it that you really enjoy doing or what particular thing are you going to wake up and have a smile on your face and say, yes, I get to do that. And then if you want to say, how can I make a business out of that? That's where I think you're going to be successful. I love that. I think that that's a, I think that's excellent advice. And uh, I love that you brought it back to your values. And so what I love, what I would love to know now is, so you've done a lot of work um, on yourself, working through your PTSD, you've said your value set has changed. And so where would you say you are at right now in terms of like where you're at mentally, comparatively to where you were the first time you got out of the military, where you were just angry, you had all these like emotions that you didn't recognize, where would you say you're at right now? Never been better. I think that it's been a rough road to get here. But I feel like for the first time in my life, I feel like mentally, spiritually, in some ways physically, because I'm definitely not the uh, mammal that I was when I was in the Marine Corps. I, I'm, I'm a few extra pounds and I need to work on that. But I've never at a point before where I felt that like the path forward was so well defined and that things were all headed in the right direction. And that's not to say that everything's fantastic or whatever. There's certainly challenges still. There's certainly things that I would like to be better on, on all fronts. But I am at the point now where like the trajectory is positive everywhere I look. And that's something that you need to cultivate. It's going to die out if you don't. At least that's what I found in my life. And so I would say that I'm at that point now where I feel like everything I, I do will be focused on positively impacting my life and the life of those around me. And that's come after a lot of work on the things that were keeping me from having that mindset. That's awesome. I'm really happy to hear that. So for you, for 
what would your advice be? So for people who are listening to this, who have yet to get out of the military, what advice would you give them to hopefully maybe short circuit that development process that you had to go through? What could they start doing now to prep themselves for that transition? Before I got out the first time, there was this captain that I was working for when I was doing that facility stuff, I think. And he had said that whether it's in four years or 40 years, at some point, the Marine Corps is going to tell you that they don't need you anymore. And you better have something waiting for you on the other side. And at the time, I laughed and thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm, I'm too busy not getting killed at war to worry about your little advice about being back. But looking back, that captain was, was incredibly intelligent for what he was trying to pass me. And I was just ignorant to, to pick up the pearl of wisdom that he was throwing at me. But I think if you're about to transition, if it's happening very soon, hopefully you've planned what your exit strategy is. If you've got a little time, start planning. Certainly by the time you're a year away from leaving. I think it's never too early to say, okay, if the service tells me I'm done, or if I decide to tell the service I'm done, what's my exit strategy? What is it that I'm going to do that's going to make me happy? And I think really the focus needs to be on what's going to make you happy. And that may be that you backpack around Europe for a year before finding a job, or you decide to go back to school, or you want to jump right into the workforce. Whatever it is that's going to make you happy, decide what that is, and then look at like reverse engineer it and say, okay, if I want to be a painter or I want to be an engineer or I want to work for this company or whatever, do the steps backwards to what's going to get me to that point. And wherever you identify that there's a gap in your ability to reach that, that's what you need to spend your free time doing is filling in those gaps, building those bridges, building those skills or those networking opportunities or whatever. So that when that day comes that you sign that DD-214, you're ready physically and mentally to go into whatever it is that makes you happy. And rolling right into that, you just talked about identifying what you want to do and then working back. And prior to that, you had mentioned some advice for those who, with the land nav, where how do we get these seemingly not applicable skills to apply in the civilian world, but do you have any other advice for specifically military members who worked in industry in areas like combat arms, where there really isn't a standard translation of skills, unless you want to go be a secure, you want to be a security officer, a cop, you want to go or work for a contractor. What advice would, what other advice might you give those folks who might not want to go and continue to work in those specific areas? Well, when I went to the TAP program on the way out of the Marine Corps, the VA was there and they had a little questionnaire that you fill out and it said what your skills in the military translated to. And they made it very clear at the beginning that if you were infantry or artillery, there was a big donut for you of skills that transition. And at the time, I laughed it off as yeah, being an artillery guy, that that's true. There isn't a whole lot to do. That was a short-sighted view. I, I hope that's not the view that they have now when they do that class, but that was a short-sighted view. I think if you're leaving the military, think outside the box. Recognize that a lot of the skills you have value outside what the surface of them are. So for instance, if you are infantry, okay, maybe you're not going to have many jobs outside the security world where you're employing weapon systems and whatnot. 
but you can certainly apply some of the organizational skills that you had. So if you were able to memorize things like how to disassemble and reassemble weapon systems and how to employ them, that shows the mental ability to take things apart, put them back together. That shows that you know how to work effectively within a team. So in a lot of cases, uh, you can have security clearances and be exposed to things that are of national importance, where that is a skill that you have been trusted to hold these very important things, depending on what your exposure to that was. And just looking at yourself and saying, well, my, my job is I drove a truck or I drove that. Like you're thinking too small. But you were also a member of a team. You were also somebody who got up and went to work every day at the right time. So you were somebody who was able to take a task and accomplish it with very little guidance. Nobody had to hold your hand every step of the way and all that. And so I think it's important to, to take a step back from what your actual MOS or military specialty is or, or your rate or whatever and say, on a day-to-day -day basis, what was I responsible for? I had, even as somebody who's only been for one tour and was just in for, call it three years or four years or whatever, you still had people under you. You've still worked within a unit. You've still been exposed to all kinds of equipment processing and things from the bureaucratic side of paperwork to employing things in action in the field or whatnot, that I think you need to just take a look at that and say, these are all skills that translate into I've done stuff while I was in the military. And it's not just the surface things of my job is to drive a truck. I would think of the whole breadth of everything and realize that, hey, there's a lot of people that they're coming straight out of college. We'll call that 22, 23 years old or whatever, about the same age as somebody leaving the service for the first time if a single tour, and they haven't been exposed to anywhere near the amount of stuff that you have as far as maybe you were responsible for, let's say you were driving a truck. Well, that's probably like a six, $700,000 piece of equipment, maybe over a million dollars worth of equipment that somebody who went to college and hadn't had any experience in that kind of stuff has never even touched you were given that responsibility and that level of confidence in your abilities. And that's the way you got to look at it is not just this is all I did. It's think of everything you did and everything that was put on you, all the responsibility, all the efforts that you put in and you were rewarded with the ability to take on more responsibility as you went through this process. That shows that you have leadership, you have confidence, you have organization. And that's the kind of stuff that I think you really need to look at when you're thinking of leaving the service is the whole breadth of what your experience within that military organization was. I love that. I, I think that it's very interesting. We do a really bad job of really understanding what we did in the service mm -hmm. and being able to apply that outside of the military. Part of that I'm, I, I'm sure comes with just, us not understanding the world outside of the military. But I, for me, there was certainly was and is to some extent this mental block of applying things that I did in the service to things that I could do on the outside. And I think that I wish that there were more resources for people to help explore that in a more in a more deep context, because I think that would be really impactful for a lot of people. Well, so, I think that there are a lot of resources out mm -hmm. there. It's just accessing them. The VA will go through uh, your background and say, these mm -hmm. are some you know skills that you can do. There's skills mm -hmm. transition, vocational rehab courses, mm -hmm. programs like the Wounded Warrior Project that'll sit there. You can go through their voc rehab stuff. They have a program called Warriors to Work where you can 
here's my interests. Here's my background. What do you think? And they'll help you write a resume. They'll help you hunt down jobs. They'll use their network to, like I had one time where they had provided me when I was really in a bad way, they provided me a gift card to go to the, the store and buy some clothes to do an interview. They'll do all kinds of stuff like that. And I think it's just a matter of taking the time to say, I know I have value as an individual, especially having come from an environment like the military. And mm -hmm. I just need to look at those resources and apply for them. And, and especially with the VA and the programs like the Wounded Warrior Project, those resources are out there and, and they will help you if you reach out to them. Yeah, no, I think that's a... I think that's an excellent call out and there really are a lot of, there are resources for sure. Engaging with them, I think is the thing that people definitely struggle with because of all the things that we've talked about before, which is just either people aren't thinking about it or people are just stuck. Like it's hard for people to consider life after the military or whatever it might be. So I think that, I think that it's very, there are a lot of things out there and it's good that you call out some of those really amazing resources for sure. So the last question that I want to ask you before we wrap it up is what would you say is your culminating piece of advice to people who are about to go through this military transition? Just like any experience or any journey that you embark on, there's going to be trials and difficulties that come in your way. And mm -hmm. by focusing on doing what makes you happy, realizing that the same team that got you through being a success in the military can be found outside of the military mm -hmm. by, by doing the work to find that team and building that strength around you, that network of support around you, you can accomplish anything you want. Don't let trauma or anybody who's a naysayer hold you back from that happiness that you deserve. Every single person, regardless of anything. Like I've heard some people say stuff like, well, I, I didn't get an honorable discharge. Who cares? You, you did time in the military, you got out. Every single person deserves to have happiness and you can achieve that. And things like PTSD are in your way and the transition process is in your way. That's where you really got to look at self-identify what it is that's holding you back and realize that there's absolutely nothing wrong with looking for help. You deserve that help. Go get it. Mm, I love it. I think that's uh, excellent advice to end the episode on. And I can't, I cannot agree more. If you are out there and uh, you feel stuck or isolated, please go get the help that you need. So, David, thank you so much for coming on today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you onto the show. I really appreciate you being willing to open yourself up and be vulnerable in front of this audience. I'm very grateful that you've decided to take the time and do so. I know that your words of wisdom and your story will be incredibly helpful to a lot of people. So seriously, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having yeah. me. And I wish you and your listeners the very best. And like I said, trauma is trauma. So recognize it and realize that like that doesn't have to stop you. Keep mm -hmm. on going. Are there any are there any social media pages or anything like that that people can go follow you on or support you? Uh, yeah, I have a LinkedIn page. You can look up a David Daly. And if you type drones, it'll probably find me. And then uh, you can also find me with Altitude University, which is online drone training. Or you can go to vigilantedrones.com and find me on my drone service company. Awesome. 
Yep. We'll make sure to have all of those, all those links in the description. So if you're interested, make sure to check those out and go check out what David is working on. And so Dave, thanks so much again for coming on. And for everyone who's out there listening, thank you so much for taking the time to make it to the end of the episode. We are so incredibly grateful. We hope that you got a lot of amazing information from this. If you like the content, sharing, subscribing, liking on whatever platform you're on would be greatly appreciated as it helps us out. But we love having you here. We do this for you and we're happy that you're on this journey with us. So thanks again so much for listening and we will catch you on the next episode of the Post-Military Podcast. Peace. Peace.